Okay, I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 12. And uh, thank you very much. I will need that. Luke chapter 12 uh, in your Bible. And while you're doing that, I want to welcome you to Prairie Hill. And whether you're in the room, uh, watching online, welcome. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, we confess that Jesus, after making atonement for our sins um, and dying in his body, was raised by the power of God. And after being raised, he appeared to his disciples and many others, that he ascended into heaven and is seated right now at the Father's right hand, making intercession for us, and that he will return uh, to this earth in great glory to judge the living and the dead. And we are waiting in the hope of his blessed return. One question we might ask ourselves is, well, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? What do we do while we wait? While we wait, we live in such a way that the world around us sees a foretaste of his coming kingdom. We as his disciples live now as we will live then. We are here to represent his coming kingdom. And... um, One problem with that is that we may not have been um, instructed very well to this point in our lives in terms of what exactly that's supposed to look like. How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of God now? What does that mean? What are our lives supposed to look like? That's why we've come to the Gospel of Luke, asking ourselves the question, what is the kingdom of God like? And we're receiving instruction week by week for what our lives should look like as we live as citizens of the kingdom of God now. Okay? So that's what we're doing. We're making micro-adjustments to our beliefs and our practice as we go through the Gospel of Luke. We've made it to chapter 12. Um, The text this morning is verses 1 through 12. So Luke 12, 1 through 12. Let's read the passage together, and then we'll think through just a little bit of text that we've got in front of us this morning for learning and understanding a little bit better what it's like uh, to live for the kingdom of God, okay? All right, Luke 12. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to do that in honor of God and his word. This is what we find. Luke 12, 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together so that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, 
the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We honor you. We submit to you. We wait on you. We worship you. Fill our lives, capture our hearts, care for our souls, great God. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, please be seated. Well, maybe when we read that, maybe the first thing that strikes us is how many difficult things are in this passage. Did you notice that as we read through? question popping into your mind every sentence practically. Think about what we have here. We have the reality of hell preached by Jesus and God with the authority to cast into hell. That's pretty difficult. We have the idea that there's a sin that you can commit that will not be forgiven. That's pretty difficult. We have the idea that Jesus may deny a person someday if they deny him. Fairly difficult. And then in a kind of opposite to all of those things, we have this great statement of care, of individual care. Jesus talking in verses six through seven about our value and how the hairs of our head are numbered and known. Okay, so we have all of those things are present here. So what do we, where do we even begin to start with all of this? Well, let's try to begin this way. Two preliminary observations about just big picture observations about the whole section that I think noticing these two things about the passage will help us to see the big picture and get a handle on what we have here, okay? First observation. Look back at your copy if you have it and just notice the presence of the Trinity in this passage, okay? Maybe you noticed that as we read, but notice that each member of the Trinity is presented to us here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see the Father referenced in verses 5 through 7. When the word God is used here, that's a reference to the Father. The Father is the one with the authority to cast into hell. The Father is the one who takes notice of the sparrows. He's the one that we're told to fear, so the Father is present. Okay, we move a little bit further, verses 8 and 9, we have a reference to God the Son. Jesus speaking of himself when he uses the title Son of Man. Certain things are said about him in those verses, right? We have God the Son. So we've got got God the Father, we've got God the Son. We know what comes next, very end of the passage. Look at that, God the Holy Spirit. Verses 10 through 12. Okay, we're just making big picture observations. Observation number one, the Trinity is here. Every member represented. Observation number two, big picture. 
Jesus is setting up a, a contrast here. That's what's happening. He's contrasting things. That's the main thing that's happening. He's saying to his disciples, don't do this. Do this instead. There's something out there that he wants them to avoid. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's how he starts out with a reference to the religious authorities. Look out for this. Don't participate in this. Don't, don't worry about those who can just kill the body. Right? That's the Pharisees. That's religious leaders. Don't participate in that. Don't worry about those who can just kill the body. Later in verse 11 at the end is don't be anxious when you have to stand before them and, and give testimony. Okay? So he bookends, the, te- the bookends of this passage are warnings against um, this certain thing. Don't be controlled by this. And then in the middle, the middle part, he's introducing a different way to orient their lives. Not around the Pharisees and what they value and what they can do a person. Don't live in fear and obedience to them. No, there's another way to live. There's another way to orient one's life. Disciples of Jesus should orient their lives around God. That's the main statement today. That's the big picture. Disciples of Jesus should orient their lives around God. That's the simple answer to the question that you may get asked later today or talk about, talk about around the table. Well, what was the sermon about today? The sermon was about how disciples of Jesus should orient their lives around God. It's the big idea of this sermon because that's the big idea of the text. Now, before we go on, let's think about our own lives in the real world, okay? Think about the other ways that we orient our lives. Let's think about our own struggles in this area. I have struggles in this area. There are a couple of different places that we can center our lives, okay? One way that we can orient our lives or center our life is around self. Self Self-centered. Our entire lives can be just centered around our own personal needs and desires. Those things can become the overriding concern. Those can be the things that drive us. The natural outcome of centering our lives on self is that we have a lot of sins. When we center our lives on self, we get really, really familiar with pride and lust and anger and those kinds of things. Those are our closest companions when we center our lives around self. Do you know what it feels like to center your life on self and live with the many sins that are a result of that? The life of being centered on self is presented to us here in this passage. Jesus warns his disciples against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That's verse 1. What's hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is saying that your life is centered on God when in reality your life is centered on self. With our lips, we say, God is the most important thing in my life. My whole life is structured around God. But in reality, actually, what our actions and our thoughts say is that actually my whole life is centered around myself. Boy, that's familiar to me. 
We say one thing with our lips, but then we go out and we get what we want, even sinful things. And then we're exposed as hypocrites, right? So one place to center our lives is on self. There's another way that we can center our lives. Our lives can also be centered on others. Not a life centered on others in a positive sense, right? There is a positive sense in which our life can be centered on others. We're talking about a life oriented around others in a negative way, where we're driven by what other people want from us or what they can do to us or the control that other people might exercise over us. Those things become the dominant influences. Keeping other people satisfied and happy and pacified can become our main concern. The natural outcome of that life is that we have a lot of fears. With a self-centered life, we have a lot of sins. With an other-centered life, we have a lot of fears. What if this other person is angry with me? Think about what they can do to me. And our closest companion in, in this life is anxiety. These ideas and dynamics are present in the passage too. Jesus warns his disciples off of fearing other authorities, fearing what they can do to you, being anxious about what you'll say when you're in front of them, He's warning them off of don't live under the dread of these human authorities. And maybe you know what that feels like too, to be others-centered in that negative kind of way. Maybe your life is a combination of these two things. It's just a mashup of self-centered and other-centered. You know what? If I'm being honest, that's what my life feels like most of the time. Maybe for you, it's mostly one or the other. And if we're honest with ourselves, these ways of orienting our lives feels really bad. It might feel beneficial or expedient to orient our lives completely around self and completely around others, but in the end, it's empty, and we were not created to live that way. Jesus warns us off of those models here and shows us another way. And what I wanted to do with you now is look at that other way. Look at what Jesus presents to us as the proper orientation for our lives and see if we can understand it well enough to benefit from it. Instead of orienting their lives around the Pharisees, this other symbol of authority in their lives, Jesus invites his disciples to orient their lives around God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we noticed a minute ago, they're all mentioned here. So what I'd like to do is take a few minutes to look at each person of the Trinity and notice especially what Jesus says about each person. It's really all that we're going to do is notice what's here about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's an interesting structure here to the information that we're given. For each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this text, we're given, for each of them, we're given both a reason to reverence that person and a reason to rely on that person. There's a reason to reverence or revere the Father. And there's a a reason given to us to rely on the Father. And so on with the Son. And so on with the Spirit. 
And as we go through, we'll have a chance to talk about some of the really difficult things that we find in this passage. Those questions are still hanging, hanging out in your mind. What does this particular thing mean? And we'll be able to address most of those. But let's start with the Father. There's something here to, refer- or to reverence about the Father. There's two reasons given to us to have a, a healthy fear of God the Father. Reason number one, nothing is hidden from him. That's verses 2 and 3. I, uh, I had a moment this week where I, I swallowed really, really hard when I read verses 2 and 3. We learn in these verses that there are no true secrets in this life. We may feel like there are. We're told here there are not. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. What is whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. The really, the really sobering thing here is it's, we're not just told that nothing is truly a secret from God. I mean, we, we know that God sees everything. The thing that really concerns us is what if everybody else sees everything? And Jesus isn't just telling us here that, you know, nothing's really a secret because God sees everything. That's not what he's saying. Look at, look at what's being said. He's saying everything that we think is a secret will actually be broadcast in the most public possible way. That's the sobering thing. That what we whisper and what we think is private will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Everything will be brought out into the light. Does knowing that, will knowing that this week have an effect on the way that you live? The other reason given to reverence the Father is that he has the authority to cast into hell. That's verse 5. I will warn you who to fear. This is the text. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. For the disciple, for the disciple of Jesus, for the the one who believes in him, how we take this statement is very important when you have this idea of hell brought in front of you. Okay, I'm talking to disciples now, people who are relying on Jesus Christ, on his blood for the forgiveness of their sins, who have laid down any claim to their own merit and are claiming Christ alone for their salvation. I'm talking to you, those wholly trusting in the cleansing blood of Jesus, that you need not fear being cast into hell when you die. Jesus is not saying to his disciples, watch out because when you die, your secret sins will all be drug out in front of God and the outcome could be really bad. Watch out that your secret sins don't find you out in the end and you be cast into hell. And here's why I say that. He doesn't say to fear the possibility of being cast into hell. He says, fear the one who has the authority to cast into hell. In other words, fear the person, not the possibility. Fear the one who has the authority to cast into hell. 
That's the message to disciples who are forgiven of their sins through Jesus. Live in holy reverence of this great God who has power over the soul. Men only have authority over the body. They can kill the body. That's all. Our proper fear is of the one who has absolute and eternal authority over the body and the soul and who will bring everything into light. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but we're really just thinking big picture today and we're noticing that there's a reason to reverence the Father. Two reasons, in fact. There's also a reason to rely on him. That's what comes next. Here's the reason to rely on him. You've noticed this. We can rest in his watchfulness over us. We, We rely on his individual personal care. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus assures his disciples of the the great watchfulness and individual care for God. We can't see God. We can't see him. He sees us. And not just with a passing glance. Not just with relative indifference. He sees us so well and knows us so fully that every hair of our head is numbered. There's a reason to reverence the Father. There's a reason to rely on the Father. Okay? Now, there's a really, it's a great paradox here. We look at this and say, okay, I get it. We reverence him for this. We rely on him for this, but there's this potentially troubling paradox here that some of you may have picked up on. It's a big enough deal that we have to say something about it. Because in the same paragraph about God the Father, we read both fear him and do not fear. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he is killed. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's verse 5. And then verse 7, fear not. Fear not because of how valuable you are to God. So the question is, just how are we supposed to relate to this Father? The only way to relate to God if you are not in Christ is, is fear. But if you are in Christ, if you acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you may now relate to God both with healthy fear for his authority and with no fear. He has become a watchful father of love to you because his wrath was poured out on Christ instead of you. That's how. There's no fear of hell or punishment for you for your sins because that wrath has been exhausted on Christ. There's none left for you. Therefore, there's no fear of the father except as the one of holy and great almighty authority. We're noticing how for each member of the Trinity, we're given a reason both to reverence them and rely on them. The goal is to begin to orient our lives around these truths, around this Trinity as we both revere and rely on God, okay? We're just noticing here about the Son that we reverence him or revere him as the one point of judgment for mankind. We acknowledge this exalted position, and we say, this is true. 
There's also a reason to rely on, here, on him here, even though it's not immediately obvious. We, we can see like, okay, we reverence Jesus for this reason, but what is there here that we have to rely on? Well, if we're looking for that, okay, what do, what do we rely on about God the Son? All we have to do is ask ourselves the question, who's doing the teaching here in this passage? Who's talking? Who's instructing his disciples on how to orient their lives? Well, it's God the Son, isn't it? The Son in the flesh, Jesus. He's not only our shelter from the wrath of God, we revere him for that. He's also our instructor, he's our infallible teacher. His word is true. He is truth itself. He not only teaches us about ourselves, he teaches us about what God is like. He is the exact imprint of the Father. And he's helping us today. He's teaching us today. He's the one who's showing us how to not be held captive by a self-centered life and an other-centered life and teaching us, here's how to orient your life around God. This is the proper orientation. By the way, that's the way Jesus' own life was oriented. Not around self, not around fear of others. His whole life was oriented around God. So this is what we say about the Son. He's the one point of judgment. Jesus Christ, also our infallible teacher. We rely on him for that. The third member of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is addressed in verses 10 through 12. This is the very end. There's something given to us here to reverence the Holy Spirit for. We learn here that the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does that mean and how could that be true? Think about this. Think about what the role of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the only source of special revelation about God. The key term there is special revelation. There are two kinds of revelation. There is something in this world called general revelation about God. That is, there are certain things that we can know about God just by looking around us, that everyone can know about God just by looking around at what's been created. Romans, that's Romans 1. That there are certain things about God that are obvious that everyone can know just by looking around, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. That's general revelation, things we can know by looking around. But by looking around, do we learn anything about sin or about sin's penalty? Or about the Redeemer that saves us from sin's penalty? Do we learn about salvation and what's necessary to offer to God? Looking at the created world can't help us understand those things. We can't identify a Redeemer by looking at general revelations. Understanding those things only comes by the special revelation of the Holy Spirit. And that special revelation takes two forms the spoken word and the written word. Both are sourced by the Holy Spirit, right? Peter, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 
What's the source of that spoken word truth about Jesus? The Holy Spirit, of course. Descended, the disciples were waiting for, descended on the disciples. Peter's out preaching, filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, the source of special revelation about forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, through the spoken word, also through the written word. This whole book, the scriptures, breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit guiding the human authors infallibly through the mediation of their own personality to write to us exactly what God wanted us to have. The Holy Spirit is the only source of special revelation about Jesus Christ, his atoning death, his resurrection. Okay? Now, for a person to persistently and finally say that what the Holy Spirit has testified to is false. That is the blasphemy spoken of here. That is what will not be forgiven. That can't be forgiven. If you say that the Spirit has not spoken truthfully about the only source of forgiveness of sin, that is to reject the only available forgiveness of sin. That's why blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It's a rejection of the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus, the only forgiveness offered. We're not talking about a one-time denial of the Holy Spirit. When you read here, whoever blasphemes of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You shouldn't think in your mind of like a momentary lapse where you just have a bad day and you utter some kind of a curse against the Holy Spirit. It's not what's in view here. If one-time momentary denials were the main issue and could condemn a person forever, then Paul would be out, Peter would be out, I would be out, most of y'all would be out. What is spoken of here is the persistent and final denial that the word spoken about Jesus is true. For someone to look at the Bible and say, that's not true. Jesus is not the Redeemer. We reverence the Holy Spirit as the beloved source of truth. We say what the Holy Spirit presents as true in the scriptures is true. So we have this ongoing trust in his testimony. On the other hand, the other side... We have this ongoing trust in his leading. That's the thing that we rely on the Holy Spirit for. We have this ongoing trust in his testimony. That's what we reverence or revere about the Holy Spirit. We also have this ongoing trust in his leading. The Holy Spirit may be relied on for in the moment, spur of the moment, in that very hour, help. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God is not unaware of your acute hour by hour needs. You will be helped. I have seen it so many times. I would love to have a parade to the pulpit for you to share in your moment of need when you're crying out to God, I need help now, and you were helped. It will happen. It's happened for me. It will happen again. It's there. You can count on him to help you. It's a reason to revere the Holy Spirit and to rely on the Holy Spirit in that very hour.
I just want to step back for a moment. We're getting very near the end here. And just step back and look at the big picture with you, okay? Think about what we've learned, how in God we, we have this authority, we have this judge, this source of truth. That's one aspect of who God is to us. But in God, we also have this watchful, caring, loving father, this teacher, this helper. So that it's right to say that in God, we have both truth and we have love. There's a, both, there's a reason both to revere and to rely we revere him as truth. We rely on his love. These are the two components of our relationship with God. Now, let me ask you a question, and then we'll be done. What do you need from your friends? What does the best kind of friendship provide for you? Well, if I think about myself, I think I need a couple things from my friends, and they're kind of different. On the one hand, I need someone who's willing to tell me the hard truth. That is to say, I need accountability. I, I need someone to keep me within the guardrails and tell me when I'm outside the rails. I need someone who's willing to speak hard truth into my life. So there's, there's a kind of hard edge to true friendship. But on the other hand, there's this kind of soft edge, too, where we really do need someone to comfort, love, support, counsel. If we distill it all down to the fundamentals, we need truth from our friends and we need love. That's what robust friendship looks like. And I want you to notice how what we're shown about God here, both the truth side and the love side, mirrors what we desire in a true friend. Disciple of Jesus, this is who God is to you. God is your friend. This isn't even an idea that we have to import into the text and just say, hmm, kind of sounds like there might be some kind of a parallel there. Did you notice? Did you notice verse four? It's the only time in the synoptic gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the only time that Jesus addresses his disciples as friends. It's not an implied idea here. It's explicit. Jesus addresses his disciples with the words, my friends. Are you used to thinking about God as your friend? I think that that's probably an idea that might get taught to us when we're in preschool and then gets abandoned forever. Is that a reality that you could think you could orient your life around? 
God is my friend. Do you remember what man's very first problem was? The very first problem faced by our race. Genesis 2, aloneness. Man was alone. And as good as human friends are, and as good as spouses are, and as good as pets are, as good as every created thing is, all of those things are in a long line of substitutes that can never fill the space in our hearts that's filled by friendship with God. God has not withheld his very self from us in friendship. with all of the reverence and reliance and love that makes for robust, satisfying friendship. Have you ever wondered what God's goal is for you? Like, what does he want with me? What's this all about? What it, what's God's plan for me? His plan is relationship, but not just abstract relationship. Friendship. Jesus addresses them, and he addresses us as my friends. Got one, one really quick story for, for you, and then I'm, I really am done. When I arrived here about two years ago, so I've been here about two years, and I arrived here about two years ago, sat down, one of my first meetings, probably my very first meeting I had with Pastor Tyler. Tyler was already on staff um, as an associate pastor here. Sat down, I was, as I did with most of the staff, and I, I told him one of the very first things I said to him was, Tyler, I want you to know that my goal, my goal for us, you and me, my goal for us too is friendship. Even though I'm his supervisor, you know, and I'm in charge of his annual reviews and, you know, yeah, okay, I'm his, I'm his boss and all that. I, in spite of the distance between us on the org chart, in spite of my supervisory role over him, I told him my goal for us is, um, my goal for us is actually friendship. Now, candidly, over the last two years, I have thought to myself in my own counsels, you know, was that really a wise thing to say? Like, isn't there, isn't there a lot of ways that that could go wrong and, you know, working relationship and all those things? Like, is that the right thing to prioritize, let alone say out loud? I want you to know that I realize now that it was exactly the right thing to prioritize, and it was an even better thing to say, I think. Because if God's goal with me and you, in spite of the distance between us and in spite of the authority that he has over us, if his goal with me and you is friendship, my goal with anybody that is under me can certainly and should certainly be friendship. And if you think that's a little bit strange, and you think, boy, I'm just wait to see how this blows up in a hundred different ways. If you think that's a little bit odd, think about how strange it is that the God who needs nothing and is perfectly satisfied in relationship has desired to make enemies his friends. And that how his goal for you 
isn't to make you feel guilty or make you feel condemned. His goal is friendship. I think you can orient your life around that. Sounds pretty trite to say, doesn't it? God is my friend. It's actually one of the most profound things that we can think about. And it's true. Amen. Father, all we can do is give thanks for Jesus Christ who has made this even possible, that he went to the cross and by his blood made atonement for our sins so that we could be brought near. That we don't need to live, live in fear. That we don't need to live in sin and spend all of our days oriented around those things, but we can meditate and rely on this glorious truth that we have become friends of God, that there is an almighty God who we may reverence and may rely on every moment of the day. Thank you for our wonderful teacher, Jesus, and we pray in his holy name. Amen.